Emergency session of the Opvac Cast. Uh, we are bringing you uh, episode fifty-eight a little bit early. Uh, we were planning on the Oscar Omnibus being our our next sojourn, but uh, a funny thing happened <laughs> uh, on the way to the theater. <laughs> uh, Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood decided we we had to discuss his latest feature. Uh, I didn't expect it, but here we are. Uh, I am joined this evening by uh, the film's foremost uh, proponent, Sean Glynis. Hello. Hi, Sean. Um, perhaps more of a skeptic, uh, Jake Tropina. Hey, Adam. How you doing? I'm doing well this evening, Jake. Uh, we are also joined by Eric Bailey, who uh, actually wrote an article for OptimismVaccine.com uh, about this very film. Uh, how are you doing this evening, Eric? I'm great, Adam. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, no Steve today, so you guys are stuck with my surly ass hosting, but uh, we'll get through. So what are we talking about? I'm, I'm going to hand this over to Sean because I, I, don't, I don't know what the hell to say about this well, thing. Well, I thought you wanted to start. Let's start with your 911. Uh, since, it's, it is, since it is an emergency podcast, why don't we start with your, your 911 update for all the, uh, all the people who are solely tuning into the OpFatCast for, uh, uh, what is it, NBC's 911? Uh, it's Fox. Thank you very much. Oh. Uh, <laughs> They seem to exclusively traffic in, in Ryan Murphy these days. Wow, well, that's going to end. Oh, yeah? Netflix. So some uh, new deal coming? Well, yeah, Netflix gave him a ton of cash. Uh, him and uh, Shonda Rhimes. So they're going to be like Netflix only uh, soon. God help us all. <laughs> um, so uh, fans of the show will know that we we touched on Ryan Murphy's latest and greatest project, nine one one, a couple episodes back, and uh, we have decided to make this a regular segment where we we check in with those brave first responders in Los Angeles. Cue the theme uh, music. <laughs> <laughs> See, Jake's on top of it. I was I was gonna have cuff cut something in a post. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just, just like hang his uh, microphone out the window and mow on. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me let me roll my window up. I, I live in uh, L.A. Okay, there, that's better. Uh, it could be the very same. The, the the only four first responders in Los Angeles could be outside your window even now. That's right. Uh, yeah, I so, downtown to Santa Monica. So the show is on a bit of a hiatus, but uh, I, I want to touch on. The Valentine's Day spectacular that they recently aired, uh, which was pretty insane. Um, <laughs> Jake, Jake, do you have any special thoughts about this episode? Because I, I do. I, I thought it was it was pretty special. Well, each episode seems to be a case of how can we outdo ourselves? And uh, by God, if they've not cranked it to eleven by now, uh, I don't know. I don't know where they are. But from what I recall, in this episode, there is uh, an emergency tracheotomy, um, a man who broke his ankle sleeping out of the second story of a building, 
because he is uh, cheating on his wife's lover with his wife. Uh, well, I, I, well, I'm blanking. What else happens in this episode? Uh, you're missing the main plot of the episode, which is uh, Angela Bassett is taken hostage oh, by a murderous right. psychopath right. Uh, who's having a bad Valentine's Christ. Day. That's right. Uh, this this uh, plot line would make for one of the wackier episodes of, of your Law and Orders uh, that you'd ever see. It's essentially uh, a cautionary tale about cheating lovers, and uh, th- this cad has multiple women he's planning to see on Valentine's Day, but unbeknownst to him, one of these women is an unstable psychopath who uh, receives some sage advice from Angela Bassett and then proceeds to uh, attempt to cut her heart out <laughs> and place it in the corpse of this cad. Uh, hey, we've all Bassett. been there. <laughs> So nine one one, it's the best. But it, it, like I said, this, this is a, a really wacky, entertaining plot, and it, it could easily fill your forty five minutes of network television programming. And, this is an uh, hour that, program. It is. Oh, it it's is. an hour program. Uh, so it is. Th- this should be the plot. It, it worked all right. It was. It was goofy. It was fun. But it. Ryan Murphy, we need to have uh, seven B plots as well, and the audience will be will be glad to know that Connie Britton and uh, Hunky McBirthmark have finally gotten together. <laughs> oh my god, that was the craziest shit, man! Um, instead of waiting thirty seconds for life saving paramedics to arrive, she takes a steak knife and performs an emergency <laughs> tracheotomy. <laughs> On on the hunk because he chokes on a piece of food at dinner. Like she calls she <laughs> yeah. calls her own nine one one network hub so she can speak to her supervisor and have her walk through the steps of what she needs to do. <laughs> it is also, can't she just perform the Heimlich or something? What? No, that failed. Y- they yeah. Couldn't, oh, okay. Dislodge the board <laughs> object. I thought she so just left right to the trach and, yeah. and just like well, food got to cut his throat open. I thought that's what that. <laughs> I have a question. Is, is this show like high camp, or like describe what? Like, how do you describe the tone that it's like? How knowing is it, and, and that type of stuff? Uh, I think it would probably be less effective if it if it felt like camp. I mean, Murphy certainly uh, deals in that quite regularly, but this show kind of treads a fine line where it still takes its subject matter far too seriously because it is dealing with these life and death scenarios but it, it also obviously has I, I can't imagine you'd center an episode around a bounce house disaster if you're not at, at least somewhat self aware <laughs> interesting okay yeah I, uh, I think it uh, I think it's trying to be 100% sincere but because it's just so outlandish and everyone is just uh, is chewing the scenery for breakfast it, it comes off as high camp okay it, it makes baffling choices uh yeah like when connie Britton calls this this 911 dispatch it's it's endlessly entertaining to me because they cut to this 911 operator and it's just one person alone in a room which is <laughs> I, i'm sure exactly how, how dispatches work it's just they all have like a, a spacious like hundred by hundred office that they sit alone in 
and meditate. And and the <laughs> woman is also for no reason wheelchair bound, and it's like kind of this big like pull out thing, and it's like what <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> Wait, so it's this large space that's her office, and not like the dispatch center that she's just sitting alone in. Well, it's it, the. It, it seemed to have only one console. <laughs> well, I think it was the. I think well, it was the, the, the supervisor. It oh, was the okay. supervisor of the nine one one center. Okay. okay. So, like most nine one one centers, are like you're at a desk about, and you're like there's a person like five feet away from you in every direction. But yeah, this the, Myros is right. This is somebody in a giant like Skynet room. <laughs> it's just one person at a lone desk. And she also happens to have medical training, so she can walk Connie Britton through this insanely dangerous procedure <laughs> that she's performing with no sterile utensils whatsoever. Hey, you know, uh, Doctors Without Borders. <laughs> or degrees, apparently. <laughs> Uh, good news is I think that I think that potentially my uh, my Phineas Gage prediction may come to pass because we did uh, receive a return from yeah uh, the man who Chippy. had a tragic pole I did, blasted through his head. I did see a clip of that. Like that Kenneth Choi didn't he have like a bar go straight through his skull essentially? Yes. Yeah. And now he's now like two weeks later he's he's back out the force. Yeah, none the none the worse for <laughs> Yeah, that's right. A, a two a two foot long piece of rebar goes through his head, and he comes back with a mark that's smaller than the hunky guy's birthmark. <laughs> All right, maybe I, maybe I'll maybe I'll start watching this. You should. Uh, it's on Hulu. I, I, I urge everyone I, to seek it out. I I might once I get a Hulu subscription. Oh my god, this sounds too good. Uh, it's pretty excellent. Uh, yeah. and I think Hulu's free for students now, or something weird like that. But oh, yeah, um. Is. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do that, and maybe I'll be maybe I'll be a part of the next nine one one update. That's right. Uh, yeah, we should probably move on. Thus concludes the nine one one report. Um, <laughs> moving on <laughs> to the meat of this episode, uh, we are discussing a film. I uh, I so, knew sorry, it was going to be I was uh, playing the nine one one outro music. <laughs> All right. Oh. Okay. Uh, All right. You know, I knew this celebration of heroes would be something special. That's why I put it over in the last episode of the Opfat cast. Uh, yeah, okay, so I was going to say, this is sort of uh, an, an, an addendum to our last podcast, right? Uh, which was the Dumpyory pod. Uh, which yeah, uh, that Sorry, we yeah. left off, we left off uh, talking about, I can't remember, who, somebody asked somebody else... Uh, uh, what would you rather watch? Uh, Twelve Strong, Twelve Times. I think that was you, Jake. Or fifteen, seventeen, Paris. And none of us had seen it at the time. I was going mm-hmm. to see it the next day. Uh, and I think that uh, I'm glad that we're doing this to cover our bases on Dumpuary and also to answer uh, that question. Yeah, yeah. We are of course discussing Clint Eastwood's uh, fifteen, seventeen to Paris. Uh, a film that that does indeed celebrate the real heroes. Uh, I'm not sure if that makes it worth a damn, but uh, we will find out. Sean, yeah, you had you had a, a strong reaction to this film, uh, yeah. an unexpected reaction. We spent we spent a lot of the last episode kind of dunking on this thing, uh, 
making light of it, and and you decided you would go see it uh, to write a review for Film Inquiry, and I I think you went in expecting a laugh, and yeah. what what happened surprised us all, and and got us all into the theater to check it out ourselves. Yeah, I I, um, I decided to write a review about it because yeah, I was just like, oh, this will be interesting. Like um, I had I had pretty strong feelings about American Sniper. And I don't think I had seen anything um, since then. And I kind of, like, thought from the abstract of 1570 to Paris, which, uh, you know, if, if, if you don't know, is about these three men who eventually uh, foiled this terrorist attack on, on this titular train. Um, and the movie that Clint Eastwood made um, is starring these three actual men uh for most of the film and it, it sort of just tells their story the the story of sort of their brotherhood when they met their friendship and and as they they grew up and it all leads to this to this uh climactic moment with um the terrorist attack so yeah i went in uh not really uh expecting much i i i, I was by all accounts expecting it to make me upset or, or or just think it was just like really silly uh, Clint Eastwood, you know, sort of getting on his conservative soapbox. Um, and I had a really weird experience with it. Um, I, I think I tried to give it the benefit of the doubt. Um, and it opens with this <clears throat> this first third about uh, the, the the children meeting each other, and it's it's like the it's some of the worst acting i've seen in a movie that has like a, a you know a, a, i think this movie was like 30 million dollars or something uh, it, it's it's the worst acting i've i've seen consistently i mean probably lucas hedges and and three billboards is is the worst but give me a break but but the, <laughs> these these kids are awful and um and then it, it, they're juxtaposed with the uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, is it Jenna Fisher? Pam from the Office? Yeah, if yeah. we if we refer to Jim from the Office in uh, a previous episode, we should probably just refer to her as Pam from the Office. Uh, That's actually a future episode. Oh <laughs> God damn it! Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, we got a lot in the can. Um, yeah, so. Uh, Pam from The Office and Judy Greer, who I like quite a bit, are in it as as moms who know each other of these boys, and they uh, it, it's very weird. They're also in this first third surrounded by a quintet of like comedy journeyman actors like Jaleel White, Toby Hale, uh, Thomas Lennon, and I can't remember the other guy's name. It's uh, Tom it's Lennon. Very, no, Tom. There was another guy. The guy that was like the 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 oh, guy the always catching him. In the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah anyway, he's it, oh, yeah. Wolf of Wall Street. He's in a ton of stuff, um, and he, it, it's just extremely odd. Um, and then it sort of progresses, and it tells this this story of, of them like sort of in their twenties and getting to know each other, and it, and it, it's just like sort of it has a weird pace to it. That kind of led me to not like it, it. Even though that acting in that first act is so weird, I was still startled by some stuff. Like there's some 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 gunplay that is a little well, not a little. It's quite startling. And um, it, it, that 
there still wasn't anything besides how weird that was that was kind of like, oh, this is garbage, like, like as far as ideologically speaking. And um, the second act is just kind of weird and still kind of, like, stilted, and I, I don't know, I just kind of, like, kept giving it the benefit of the doubt or just be like, all right, what is happening? And then the third act... <laughs> Uh, it involves these three in in uh, their backpacking trip in Europe, and it's just the most uh, insane thing I've seen in a mainstream film in a long time. Uh, not because anything bizarre happens, but because nothing happens until something happens. And it's just like, I, I didn't know, like, it just gave me so much to process in the moment. And I, and then it ends with this this finale, uh, the climax, and then it ends with this like coda uh, that we could probably talk about later. But uh, that it, uh, it all seemed to sort of click into place in this third act as to like why these real actors were in place and why I, I found myself drawn to them. And I walked out of there uh, kind of touched. And the more I thought about it, the the, the more sort of things connected in my brain and. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I think I woke up the next day saying that I, I think that it might be a masterpiece, <laughs> um, which was not what I expected at all, which was really refreshing and, and great. Um, but yeah, I didn't know that we were going to have the best picture of 2018 in, in uh, February. <laughs> oh, my Lord. So you're saying it's uh, this year's Get Out. Yeah, it is. And then, so I should say, I, I kind of like, uh, you know, I was, I was conveying that to you guys in, in, in our chats online and just being like, this is not what we thought it was. Um, and then I said, you know, the next morning, I think this might be a masterpiece and it, it's just really interesting and it's bizarre and experimental. And um, I persuaded Jake and Myros, at least, to see it, which, which was definitely not uh, on your checklist of things to do. I think Eric went pretty willingly. Um, but yeah, that's that's why we're sitting here today. Yeah? Uh, that, this is true. I, I still can't decide whether <laughs> Sean has been playing an elaborate joke on us this entire time. Uh, are you saying I wrote... seen the film. Are you saying I wrote 3,700 words <laughs> on this movie <laughs> so that I can, like, get you to go see it? I... It's, it's the long con, man. <laughs> It does seem possible. Uh, I, well, that doesn't say a whole lot for my work. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, maybe it says a whole lot about your work. Mm. Look at uh, Andy Kaufman. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You, you could be some twisted genius, but uh, is this wor a work of twisted genius? I, I don't know that I'd concur. Uh, I will. I will say one thing: you you are a hundred percent correct. It is certainly not what I thought it would be, which is cool, uh, right? That it is cool, but it it doesn't necessarily mean that it, I, yes. I found it to be especially meritorious. But sure, uh, sure. I, I I'll get to my thoughts on it, I suppose. But I, I kind of want to hear someone else chime in. I, let, let's kind of go in... Uh, let's crisscross a little. I want I want some dissent. The man who hated this film the most, uh, Jake Tropila. Yes, hello. Let, I'd like to hear what you think of Sean's uh, analysis and uh, what you made of this thing. So, um, before I went into this, uh, the film came out and it received largely negative reviews. Um, I'm looking at it right now. It's currently sitting at 25% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but it's, uh, and it's going to be bumped up later this week. 
Yeah, but uh, <laughs> it'll bump up to twenty six or whatever. But um, <laughs> and a lot of the a lot of the complaints were just just uh, like slack direction on Clint Eastwood's part, but largely uh, the target is painted on the backs of three men who were cast to play themselves, um, which a lot of critics say doesn't even work in the slightest. Um, but Sean, you came walking away from it with very effusive praise, and uh, Eric, you followed soon after. And um, we here at Optimism Vaccine can be seen as uh, out of touch with uh, the general consensus of critics, as you'll hear in our upcoming Oscar <laughs> podcast, Cough, Cough, Shape of Water. <clears throat> but yeah, so I was curious as is to check this movie out because maybe maybe this is a misunderstood masterpiece that just flew over everyone's heads and Sean I think you're a very sharp guy and Eric you're you're not too bad yourself um, but uh, <laughs> thank you Jay. No, you're both, you're both. <laughs> but I sat down and from like the first moment I wanted to pull my hair out at this movie <laughs> this is like such an inane. First of all, I should applaud Clint Eastwood, because um, I think this might be the first feature film that felt like it was shot entirely by a second unit. Um, <laughs> just There's just a general lack of any sort of uh, uh, creative impulse or anything resembling what a Clint Eastwood movie is, because he's, you know, this is not the first time he's made this kind of movie. He made Sully last year, which... Uh, expands a single event in this pilot's life to a feature-length film, and it concerns these legal troubles he had and issues he's dealing with before the the crash. And it's, you know, of course, you have Tom Hanks in the lead role. But this, I mean, this movie is like operating on, for me on a completely different plane of bad. Like, and and it, and I hate to say it, but I the performances are just terrible. The three men are they. They're stilted. They have this very awkward camera awareness in how they deliver their lines, and they don't really have much emotion or anything behind their lines. Uh, and the film also looks aggressively cheap, too. And I, I looked up. I was wondering if this was maybe some DP that uh, that some first-timer, some new guy that Clint Eastwood hired to make the project. But this is the guy who's been shooting all of his films since Million Dollar Baby. Who shot this movie? And but like a lot of it it's almost like, as if it's intentional. Yeah, but even even with the intent behind <laughs> no, it, it shouldn't look this repugnant. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and it, and like and I don't know why. Uh, I think it only would work as an unintentional comedy because, like you mentioned, you have these comedy actors in supporting <laughs> roles, like what, like like these young boys get their words of wisdom from fucking Steve Urkel. <laughs> that, like, that has to be an, a joke. Well, I mean, I mean, uh, we should say, it's not Steve Urkel, it's Urkel's uh, it's, sexy okay, it's, twin. It's Stefan. Stefan, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alright. Whatever. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I just could not get into it, and it became an excruciating 94-minute uh, wait for the credits for me. I'm, I'm sorry to say I could not once buy into any of it. Um, let me rest my brain for a second. Eric, you liked this movie. What did you think? <laughs> I did like this movie. I don't think I liked it to the degree that Sean liked it. I don't think I'd call it a masterpiece. I, I, still, I still don't know... Like I, I've sat with this thing for like two weeks, and I'm still 
not 100% sure what to make of it. I think I've got a decent grasp of it, but I still... Sure. It, yeah. the, 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 you know, a firm take on it still sort of eludes me. I, I, I agree with Sean that, like, I... That first act is, like, re- just really wonky. Like, just, it's... It's not just bad acting. It's, like, a, it's a terrible script. Like, like at least in that first act, like, like I've never heard... like a a seventh grader say in a word no like like they don't talk like kids at all (laughs) it's just it's so weird and like i almost like just guffawed in the theater when judy greer said like you know my god is greater than your statistics and i was (laughs) like like i like it 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 felt like something that should have been in like one of those uh chris recent christian films like god's not dead or something. Well, that was that was like that was my comment. I said off mic is that this was like a, a this was a, a low rent Chris, Christian film that somehow got <laughs> smuggled into a wide release. Yeah, yeah. And I said that's. I don't even know if it had. And yeah, and yeah. I don't know if it had that text though. I mean, it was it was like it had that text for like ten minutes. Yeah, yeah. It was it was like that for the first act. But yeah, like that's what that's kind of one of the interesting things about it is that like it becomes like. Like with each act, it becomes almost a different movie, and um, and especially when you get to the third act, like that's definitely I I found like this this sort of lackadaisical pacing that they have, like, you know, like Sean said, like nothing happens there, and it's like he, and Sean's not exactly exaggerating, like there's literally just scenes of them just. You know, talking about selfie sticks. Talking and, about selfie yeah. sticks, and they just meet this girl, and then they walk around and they talk about the horse sculptures that they're seeing, and they start at the restaurant. And they have this like whole conversation about like, "What are you getting?" Well, I'm getting this. Oh, that sounds good. Blah blah blah. And then they go to a gelato shop, and they're just like, and like it literally spends two minutes in this gelato shop, and all that happens is just like, I decide, like I want the cherry gelato, I want the vanilla. It's like it's weird. It's like it's like it, it was it was something that I found so striking that I'm just like this isn't like this isn't just bad like this this can't be bad filmmaking this is like a very deliberate thing that Eastwood is doing and so like, yeah it's I his can't, thirty I can't, I can't it's his thirty sixth movie which exactly is interesting like it's it, and it, he's an experienced filmmaker at this point he's eighty seven years old I mean maybe he's going senile that's that's that's, pot, that's entirely within the realm of possibility, but like he's he still seems like a sharp guy to me, and so like it it it's it's too it's a choice that he that is so he is so invested in that it has to be deliberate, and like I ju- I couldn't just write that off as just like oh that's just a bad filmmaking choice, like a lot of the stuff you can do in the first act, it's like especially with that third act, it 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 sort of is like. My initial reaction to it was like, I, I guess they're trying to like put you in these guys' heads. Like, like, are they trying to like lull you into this like very relaxed sort of state so that the shock of the the actual terrorist attack that the um, that the film is building towards has more of an impact? Like, I couldn't wrap my head around that exactly, but yeah, <laughs> I, well, I it was it was it was too interesting and too. Um, it was just it was just too odd to dismiss for me as as was my reaction yeah. to it. I'm kind of on the same plane, except I I think it I would point to its failings a little more than maybe Eric would. But uh, 
I didn't hate it. I just I just spent the entire runtime like squinting at the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I I just couldn't I couldn't figure out what the hell he was trying to do. And and I I will admit that uh you know, Sean's writing and and Eric's writing to an extent as well had me kind of reevaluating my preconceived notions of Eastwood. Like you you see Eastwood as this God and Guns Republican. At least that's how I've always viewed him. Young at a chair. Yeah, the, yeah. the whole Obama chair yeah. thing, and and the fact that he's pumped out about seven hundred military movies. Uh, <laughs> he's just he he comes across like a God and Guns Republican, and and this and with, but if you're going to parse anything out of the first act of this film, it can't possibly be pro God and Guns because the tone is just insane like it's not judy greer comes across as a fucking lunatic <laughs> it's not like celebratory or like like glorifying enough to be that i feel like it's just like yeah, it, and, the tone and is if just you do too, look in it's too like kind of relaxed and sedate and just very matter of fact for that right but it at the same time these things are happening that have to read as indictment because they can't yeah. read as anything else when when this kid comes over to the other's house and he pulls out like <laughs> seventeen guns out of his closet, and it's like, what the fuck? And one <laughs> of them like, is real. <clears throat> yeah, he he not only has like every possible model of airsoft gun, uh, yeah. he also has a, a legitimate rifle, and it can't it can't read as anything other than some level of of indictment. And, and well, you know, if you do research Eastwood. That notion, that preconceived notion, is is wrong. Like his political views, I don't agree with. But he's he's really he's not actually a Christian. He's not pro gun. He actually supported the Brady Bill. He's, so, he's much more nuanced politically, and I think his films are much more nuanced than you'd get. Well, I, I I actually want to talk about sort of his films more broadly and people's response to them. But yeah, I agree that it's just like it's it, he's a lot more nuanced and not as sort of black and white as you'd think he'd be based on sort of his, some of his, some of his antics in public. Yeah, I think for me that I still really don't know what his intent was with a lot of this casting. It feels like stunt casting. That if that first act is, and I'm not talking about stunt casting in the sense of of the real heroes. That actually didn't bother me. It, I mean, other than the fact that Spencer Stone just looks like everything I hate. Uh, <laughs> I, that he, uh, the performances by those three gentlemen were not my problem with the film at all. Uh, the performances, or, or the very presence of, of Tony Hale and Thomas Lennon <laughs> was much more of a, of a head-scratcher. I was just yeah. like, what? What is he doing? It's, it's, I don't understand what this choice is. I, it generally, and I still don't. They really, like, a lot of the actors that he cast, like like Judy Greer and Jenna Fisher and Tony Hale and Thomas Lennon and all of them that we just mentioned, like, they all seem, like, just lost at sea. And, like, I think, like, Eastwood's got this, like, he's kind of famous for just, like, being very laid back and, like, almost just doesn't direct his actors in a way. Like, he sort of just, like, shows up and maybe gives them, like, a couple words here and there and then just says action and they do two takes and they move on. He and doesn't like, even say, oh, he doesn't even say action. He, oh, yeah. He's the kind of guy who just says, go go ahead when you're ready. And then <laughs> just they roll the camera on that. Um, yeah, this is, like... This is Clint Eastwood's style the movie. 
<laughs> yes. Judy Greer. Judy Greer is almost supposed to be like the sympathetic presence in the first act. She's she's the primary character outside of her son. Her and her son are are the frame of reference, and uh, she comes across as as a deluded and neglectful parent who's having, who's letting like their ten year old watch Full Metal Jacket and idolize <laughs> this violence in such a way, and. When told that he, he probably has ADD, screams at the principal about God and and takes the son out of school, and it's just like, I, I don't know, hachi machi. But uh, <laughs> when it it certainly gets more interesting and more focused as the film goes on, and that third act is, it's interesting. Yeah, I yeah. I, I have a hard time suggesting that, you know, like Gomer Pyle's European vacation is, is really <laughs> fucking compelling cinema. <laughs> but uh, oh my God. it's doing something, I guess. Uh yeah. I just don't I just don't know if, if it justifies its runtime, but I'm interested to hear Which... more of what, what you pulled out of it, Sean. You 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 juice this fucking thing. You you seem to to gather great meaning from his choices, and I, and I still don't find myself able to do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I thought it was funny that uh, you stressed the runtime because this is like ninety four minutes, which is like uh, breezy in contemporary Hollywood, um, which I'm thankful for. Um, but one of the things, uh, and I, I'm excited for Eric to talk about Eastwood more, uh, contextually because this did make me real reevaluate Eastwood. Like I went in, like I said, like not really expecting much and I like, and I, I didn't like American Sniper. And the more I thought about this movie and the way that I, I think that it critiques some of the values that we assume that he has Eastwood, um, in the more the more I read about um, other like other people's uh, writing about his previous work, I, I think maybe I, I did take it at, at face value, or maybe he was trying to say things that I overlooked in films previously. I mean, I haven't seen all of them because I was so turned off by something like Million Dollar Baby, but maybe there's something interesting in there, um, and I'm willing to to give that a shot. I mean, what's the harm in that? Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Like, it seemed to me, <clears throat> the more I thought about it as, like, we're talking about all of these things that seem so weird and that don't feel natural. And I came away, the more I thought about it, like, that this was the purpose of the movie is to to, to, to show you that this is a movie and, and that it it's a construction of his and he's trying to tell you something. If we think about Clint Eastwood, like, like I mean, I think we've proved in this discourse that we think of him as a very opinionated man. So um, even though he might have this lackadaisical director style, um, you know, he's trying to say something in all of his movies, except, I don't know, like in the clear, what in the line of whatever the hell that movie is with John Malkovich. I don't know. Maybe that maybe I should revisit that and find something besides a, a weird John Malkovich with a wooden gun. Um, but we, we think of him as a very opinionated man. And that kind of like I, <clears throat> I don't want to reduce this down to like intent, but I mean it does sort of like it did make me think, like Eric said, like that it, it makes it hard to dismiss that like this is a man that we think of as somebody who is trying to say something, and that it is his thirty sixth movie. Um, but it it 
it struck me as a movie that's trying to tell you that it's a movie and that it's not trying to uh, valorize uh, humans in the in the way that or it, it's not trying to valorize heroes the same type of heroes that we're used to in movies that sort of just glide you glide you along. It, this benefited uh, by the fact that I watched Twelve Strong for our stupid dumbuary uh, thing uh, <laughs> the day before, um, and just sort of like thinking more about how bad Twelve Strong is and and what it's trying to do and how that that Twelve Strong is just that is the most generic thing possible, and by that I mean that it just fits in with this this milieu of Hollywood movies that is just like here's the heroes. Uh, and this is what they do for America, and it's always tied to the military. And I, I don't know. I kept finding pieces within this movie that, like one, <clears throat> that uh, in that first act, the thing that I took away from it most was all of this this iconography of violence that we talked about, um, and and how that never manifests throughout the movie. Like yeah. they're, they're playing they're playing guns, and we're we're seeing all all of these posters and. The mom, you know, is letting her him watch Full Metal Jacket, and and the kid, or and when um, Spencer grows up, he's wearing this shirt that has even Clint Eastwood's face on it, as you know this this uh, I think it's Pale Rider, uh, I don't know, whatever else, I, I don't I don't know what icon it, it's from of his, but um, he, these these men, I, I realize in the second and third act, they're not obsessed with violence. And uh, I think that this no. is a distinct point that he's making. Um, and the more I looked at his work, uh, or the way that people wrote about his work, um, and how violence plays a key role in that, that it was always tied to this, this paternal tie that passes through generations. And... Um, and that's interesting to me in this movie because there's we we get to know in this really clumsy first act that that they don't have fathers and and I was like that ha- like that that makes too much sense in his uh, filmography that makes too much sense to not make anything of it for me um, and and so it's interesting that there's there they are uh, filled with all of these violent things in their childhood which isn't abnormal he's not like look at these kids you know these are things that we all did. Um, or you know, I, I assume, but a lot of kids that I know, at least, uh, did similar things, and then it just doesn't turn into anything. Um, and that's yeah. such a different point of view that we're used to in movies. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I think that that was the point was uh, that all of these weird things, the weird Euro trip thing, is trying to draw a line between these these heroes that are destined for greatness. And everything leads to the next thing. This thing leads to a promotion in the ranks. And this act of bravery leads them to, like, charge this group. And, like, that's kind of what we're used to. And that doesn't happen at all. In fact, no. they they do this... Um, <clears throat> they do this terrorist... Uh, you know, they, they thwart this, this attack uh, when they're off-duty. Um, and even that made sense to me. Like, because the only, like thing that we knew about like two of them are in the service and and any time that the service was brought up it was while they were in it it was it was just like sort of it was not glamorous at all you know it was them sitting around and being like bored or uh sort of discontented with the position and spencer doesn't doesn't get the rank that he wants or or the 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 actual program that he wants but um and i don't know there's some something touching in the second act where uh spencer's at a jamba juice and where he works, and it's a very weird scene. Again, it's extremely odd to just like see this this 
very lackadaisically directed scene of this guy juicing and uh, <laughs> at, at the Jamba Juice behind the counter and talking to his coworkers, and it's not exactly it doesn't feel natural. And then there's a recruitment thing going outside, and this guy comes in and and from the service, and he kind of talks to him about it, and and the and Spencer says something about how like kick ass it is to just like want to help people, and and it's even though it's like stilted, I couldn't help but being like, yeah, I mean he's right, like he's not trying to like get behind the sights of a gun. Uh, he's not he's, he's not trying to get into SEAL Team Six. He's trying to join a pararescue trooper. Yeah, and like he's he not influenced. He's not influenced by the pop culture that he was exposed to or anything like that. He's literally he makes his motivations clear, not in like a pedantic way. That he's just like really turned on by like the idea of helping people, and that ha- that turns out to be what they do. Like when the attack happens, um, they they disarm him. They don't have these guns, and they don't like you know kill him. I don't know. It's. This this is really long winded, but it just made too much sense to me. The more I thought about it, from act to act to act, um, and like you know, you mentioned that girl that they have dinner with, or that the the woman that they meet on the the boat in their their trip, and and I was like, <clears throat> okay, this is the woman that you know either they're gonna have like a fun time with, and there's gonna be like some sort of sexual um, chemistry, or she, you know she's gonna get on the train with them and be in peril and whatever. Like it, it do these. These shortcuts for the audience to make us care about this person or that person or make us think that this person's good. And that doesn't happen at all. They literally have dinner with her and then we don't see her again. And I was like, that's so refreshing to see these things happen in a movie. Especially one that is about this attack. Yeah. If I could if I could play... Um, this sort of plays in what I want to talk about with sort of Eastwood's body of work more broadly. But like I, to play sort of play devil's advocate with all that, like... Like, I'm not saying I disagree with you, Sean, but, like, I also get thinking about some of these aspects, like, like, you know, how, like, earlier in the, early in the film, there's, you know, Spencer's shown to be kind of, like, uh, he has this weird sort of, like, I don't want to call it gun fetishism, but, like, he, you know, like we mentioned, he's got, like, all these airsoft guns and a real rifle and everything, and it's just, like, and, and, like you said, nothing comes of it, and it's sort of, it's sort of one of those things where... It's like there's no. It's sort of, it's sort of like a Chekhov's gun that never goes off. Um, like it's it, <laughs> yeah, like that's a really no good way of putting it. It's it's set up and then nothing ever comes of it. And it's it's a weird. You can one. I guess one way you could read that is um, that like that is sort of a conservative thing. It's like oh no, it's totally healthy for boys to be into guns and everything, and nothing bad will ever happen. But it's like if you like if most people saw this kid. And, like, all these freaking like, toy guns and the actual gun that he had and, like, how he and his friends are just so obsessed with war early on there. It's like, you put that kid on, like, a watch list or something. Like, like he's... I don't know. Like, you like, you might so, be surprised. Yeah. Possibly. But, um, like, and it's just sort of... And so, like, so going along with that, like, so you could sort of say that that is sort of a conservative statement of like you know that doesn't like ex- like that mass exposure to guns doesn't breed any sort of violent tendencies mm, which mm. like there's that That's interesting and so, and so <clears throat> you could and then so but going off of your point of like there's so many things that are set up and not paid off like the girl and then this thing but then there are also a lot of moments which are very traditionally like hollywood set up things like 
here he's learning like a chokehold in like yeah. the second act that eventually is the thing that ch- like knocks the terrorist unconscious and then here he's learning um like a specific medical procedure that is eventually going to save a dude's life and then like there's that roof there's the fa- there's the rooftop scene in that's in the trailer that he's just like you know you ever feel like something's pushing us towards something greater and it's so it's like I can see what you're saying, Sean, about how, like, there's all these different things that are, like, refreshingly not paid off. Like, they're just sort of moments that don't really add up to anything, and it's just, like, and there's no, like, it's not setting these guys up to be heroes, necessarily. They're just guys who just did the right thing at the right time. But then there's also moments that sort of conflict with that. And, like, like the rooftop scene, like the chokehold thing, like the, like, you know, there's all these different things that are set up and do pay off so and so that's sort of what i want to get into yeah like with clint eastwood is just like i i often read that people say he's a lot more complex and nuanced than you know he would seem at first glance and to a degree i i to a certain amount i agree with that and people a lot of people say that that's this is especially true of his films um i know like two big two big critics that are like especially big fans of his um cam collins for the ringer and richard brody for the new yorker like they often talk about like how nuanced his films are i think i heard cam collins say recently that like his film his films are better than he is um essentially um yeah he didn't like like this movie did he no but he didn't like this movie but he loved american sniper and he loved sully too which i found interesting um and I personally like I I like some of Eastwood's films like I enjoyed Million Dollar Baby, um, but like for the most part I've never really quite understood this fascination and this sort of championing of Eastwood's film like he's like as this like complex moral filmmaker. Um, I get, because I guess where some people read complexity, I read confusion. Like I I, re- mm-hmm. I, I, I read I see like a film that's really like fighting with itself like and 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 doesn't really add up to anything kind of coherent or cogent i just see a lot of like tendencies like of eastwood's politics of eastwood's philosophy and maybe also that of like the screenwriter too like just really kind of like butting heads and not like adding like really adding up to to anything and you know i i guess some people could see that as complex but i i read that as just conflicting as as a film that just is very that just doesn't know what it wants to be. Like I, I mentioned in my review, how it like you know those those elements, like they like Eastwood's direction seems to be fighting the script, as as it were, and and the script is setting is there's a lot of moments where it feels like the script is setting up. It's like no, these guys are heroes. They were always meant to be heroes or something like that. But Eastwood seems to be like no, they're not. They were just three dudes who did the right thing. Which- and Which so, is a very Eastwood thing to do, even like I mean, this is this is like mythologizing almost. But to be like, you know, you gave me this script, and sure, you want to do this? Well, no, uh, it's not really how it's going to go. Yeah, <laughs> like, um, not going to let this p- pencil pusher get one over on me. Yeah, but then but then he doesn't fix anything in the script. He doesn't like have any anybody come in and do a rewrite right. and say like do like get rid of this stuff and change it to this. Like he just goes with it, and so it's just yeah. sort of, like and so. Yes, I do find that aspect of that of his of that of his that aspect of his process fascinating, but I I don't know if that's really enough to like sort of write write him off as like a great filmmaker in my book. I don't I mm-hmm. don't see that sort of complexity and nuance that a lot of people 
see in his films. I just see a filmmaker who, you know, knows what he wants to say in certain spots, but in other places he kind of just throws up his hands and says, like, well, the chips, let the chips fall where they may kind of thing. And so, like, I, I, yeah. Oh, well, I was just going to address and like uh, the t- sort of your two instances that you mentioned previously, and, and maybe this will, I mean, this will lead to, to my ultimate response to, to what you're saying. Um, and, and I should say, like, I don't, like, I do think, like, I don't really, I don't feel I, I hesitant to call it a masterpiece because it's just like such a weird thing to me and it works and it and it's stuck with me and uh it's just so odd in such a special way and, oh yeah i agree I don't know, the, the older i get the less i care about what the word masterpiece means you know like <laughs> who cares um but like what i would like to reserve that for is movies that seem really special to me and this has um but uh the you mentioned his training and how he used that um so yeah, we do get, like, some scenes of Spencer, like, um, going through some trainings and learning some techniques. Um, and then he ends up using that. And there's actually, uh, when when they stop the terrorist, uh, there's actually a, a scene that's kind of tense. Um, and I, I kind of want to see what you guys thought of, uh, about this scene. Uh, during the training where, uh, like, an active shooter alert goes off on the campus. And <laughs> Spencer... Like, everybody gets under the desk as protocol, and Spencer, like, takes a ballpoint pen and goes up to the door and, like, has it just, like, cocked, waiting for, like, this terrorist or active shooter, well, same thing, to come in, and he was, like, willing to to, to do what he needed to do this to stop that terrorist attack, uh, presumably from, from hurting anyone else. Yeah. Um, it, like, what did you... Did you guys... What did you guys make of this this scene? Because I, I kind of like I really enjoy the fact that it, like nothing ends up happening. It happened. It, it's a false alarm, but it it really kind of like spoke to me about how disruptive, uh, how intent Eastwood is on disrupting this causal narrative. That like no, you do this training and then you're gonna need it like at this moment. And not only was he like ready at this time when he didn't need it. But but when he actually ended up using the training, it was like off of military grounds and it wasn't affiliated with with his position. And it just struck me as like, you know, uh, Eastwood is is more than conservative, sometimes called a libertarian. And, and I think that that speaks to that narrative as like somebody who can help outside of these, um, you know, government agencies. But, um, yeah, what do you guys make of that scene? See, I disagree with you on that scene. To me, it felt yeah. like uh, another part of a very problematic script. I don't, I don't think this is anywhere near the worst movie I'll see this year, but it, it may be the worst script that got produced and turned into a movie this year. Um, it feels very much like I, a first I do, draft. <laughs> right. I, I do see a lot of what Eric is, is talking about with that, that conflicting narrative, and... And while I can acknowledge a lot of the points you're making about Eastwood's subversion of, of certain aspects, at its heart, when you have these narrative dead ends, these things that seemingly go nowhere and contribute nothing to the narrative, <laughs> what you end up glomming onto is the stuff, is this predestination stuff. To me, that mm-hmm. balcony scene, it, yeah. it feels like the thesis for the film at this point, even if it's not. It, it's just one of the few things you can kind of latch on to it maybe that's my 
shortcoming as as a viewer and a critic. But uh, it, it that's that's how I felt at, at this point in the third act. You're looking back on stuff like like the pencil scene, and it and it feels like well, it's because of his solid upbringing and his experience yeah. with valor and and military heroism, and and it felt like another piece that prepared him for this. Well, there's also he was hurtling towards. And, there's and also to me, like. Sorry, the the Jaleel White uh, moment where they're in the class, and I think he says something like super on the nose, like, um, "Oh yeah, gonna be, are you going like, to be ready at any moment?" To take yeah, action, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. Now that I, I hadn't thought of this previously, but uh, that that like sort of I don't know. This might be reductive at this point, but what the hell? It's a podcast. Um, <laughs> th- that like that is something that sort of he he globbed onto as a child is like that type of message I guess is that like he wants mm-hmm. to to be ready to take action or whatever that means to him which it turns out to be like you know helping people that need help uh, instead of while he but, has all of these guns but it feels like the scene in uh, in American Sniper where the, they're eating dinner and the father's talking to the two sons and he says there's three types of men in this world there's uh, there's sheep sheep dogs and wolves are you going to be a sheep or are you going to be a sheep dog and that same sort of thing applies to the Jaleel White's motivational speech which is I mean awkward in, in both respects that A, it, it's sort of like what Adam mentioned is predestination, it sort of comes back around as to like this this advice that Steve Urkel gave to him and, and B, because it's Steve Urkel it, it is just makes it all the more bizarre and going back to the uh, what, what turned out to be a false alarm with the active shooter on the, uh, the base camp um, that scene also I think works against the argument you've put forward Sean because it's like knowing how the outcome of the movie goes before I've seen the movie it's like Spencer Stone is feels he's conditioned preconditioned to be a hero or wants to be a hero it's something that he's desperately trying to achieve and and it, like he'll risk his life with an active shooter I think honestly the movie would kind of work a bit better without it and without any sort of scripting issues where they they sort of are like bear, digging into the kids' heads. You need to, or ingraining this this thought that you need to you need to you know do good things, or you know you were made as a as a saint in this world, and and just if if like if it was just a series of sequences that had nothing to do with them eventually becoming heroes, it it would honestly work a bit better for me. But yeah, there's there's just too much of the the preordained. You know, you will do great things when you right. have your training. Yeah, I, it, it felt that way so much to me. Like I kept like I was almost expecting Abigail Breslin to show up and set down a bunch of glasses of water on the fucking training. I, was like, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I I can't remember in what uh, I can't remember exactly what I wrote, but I remember like that. I think that um, Cleast, uh, Clint Eastwood, Cleastwood, uh, <laughs> he's um, he is interested in telling us like what he thinks a uh, a hero is i think that that's that's like sort of the point of the movie uh through spencer and and his friends by extension um and maybe this is his idea of a hero i mean like i think his idea of a hero is is um definitively different from what we're told as a hero in pop culture in movies uh that like 12 strong uh, and maybe this is uh, his idea of a hero, is somebody who takes those lessons and applies them well. 
And it, you know, he, it, like Spencer is a very morally upstanding man and he's using those things like for good he wants to be in this pararescue program you know he's not trying to like be a force of this colonial power that like we've seen uh before uh and right. that, i don't know that really that really struck with me um but uh the balcony scene i think is like i I do. I did think like like I you know I saw that in the trailer and it was ridiculous. Uh, which first of all, I think the trailer is hilarious to go back and watch after you see the movie because it's like ninety percent train and and that scene and military like footage. There's like nothing of like what is actually seventy five percent of the movie. Yeah, which is pretty great. Um, yeah, it's got that like monologue, the, <laughs> that inspiring monologue, which it 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 does appear in the film, but it actually it appears does? in a in a yeah. brief montage. It's in montage. Oh, oh my god, okay. that montage! I like the one with the moment that I almost laughed at. The one with the Imagine Dragons. It's Imagine Dragons with no singing. What it, yeah. yeah, it's Imagine Dragons with that inspirational monologue layered over it, and him just like slamming a medicine ball and stuff, and it's like. Okay. Uh, I, don't, I, I didn't even I didn't remember that being in. But yeah, I, I will say, regardless of anything else, that that this movie is brilliantly subversive in that respect because the the train sequence is is ten minutes of this movie, if that. Yeah. Right. And I think what follows is what follows is really like I, I mean I was won over uh, by the Euro trip thing, but like um, ultimately what, during watching it, but but. Uh, I, there was something about you know he puts in this piano music and 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 it, so for those who don't know after the train, um, it goes to this this footage like they you know they're they're heroes by the French, um, I can't remember the the title but like they're 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 heroes at this French ceremony, and um, it fuses into this um, real footage of the men when they were actually. Uh, honored and it just really hit me in a way that I couldn't really describe or articulate until hours later and I was just like what the hell uh, I was not expecting this and what what really struck out to me at the moment was that this isn't what this isn't an American story uh, that he's not trying to tell us that this is like an American hero and they did this thing like it's sort of trying to uh, cross boundaries and mm-hmm. uh, it, that's sort of like this idea of this hero who is helping people regardless of who they are you know there were a lot like the train was filled with mostly um, foreigners or non-Americans uh, which is a really interesting point right like this is uh, very interesting to juxtapose with something like United 93 which I mean I think is probably garbage Um it's it's whatever it's fine it's not like it's just there and but it 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 is this this uh american story and and um i don't know juxtaposing that with with 15 17 is really powerful to to see him be like you know what these are heroes not because they were acting on behalf of the military or saving americans they were just saving people because that was their instincts um, and the ending is is uh, just I, I can't even really speak about it like well, but it just really hit me as just like being able to watch these people be honored for who they were, despite 
uh, where they were or anything like that. It just lacked this motivation from the film that uh, I've been subjected to. Right. I, See, I I think this is my major disconnect with you and Eric is well especially Eric because I think our views are are pretty in line on this film but but I think this is where it lost me uh, I I just didn't, oh man I just didn't have that reaction to it I don't think it was a poor choice it just it never emotionally grabbed me in the way that it seems to have with with the two of you yeah well I mean I, like I I, I, yeah. I said sorry, sorry Eric I'll, I'll uh, defer to you in a second, but uh, yeah. what what uh, before I forget, um, what I really like about that formalistically is that it does draw attention. You know, like the the quality in the the the, the image mm-hmm. changes, and, and the the boys look a little bit younger or less shaven. You know, like there's clear differences, and it does really go to that point that I made at the beginning: is that what you just watched was a movie. Uh, he's not trying to make any bones about that, and I think that that. Um, that fuse like it's not like um it's not cutting to in a in a uh, in a credit sequence and showing the real footage you know it's just like fusing the two together in a way that's that that is recognizable and being like this was a movie and i wanted to say something with that um at least that's my message but anyway eric um yeah i just wanted to say i i do agree i you're, you're right in that adam it's like i do agree with sean that i i did find that sort of final scene that coda to be like to actually be surprisingly moving, I was sort of taken aback by it. Like I, I was, I was, I was caught off guard by it. Um, uh, partly because I, I, I agree with Sean that it is this sort of like breaking down national borders and like sort of not defining ourselves by this or that. And so that that's again just another point in the corner of like Eastwood being a lot, a lot more nuanced than you would expect. Of just like you expect him to be some like this like you'd expect his views and this movie to be you know some sort of like chest beating pro american type thing but it's not that it's not it it's very much not a kind of nationalist thing this whole movie and i also agree with Sean that like i think that um idea of heroism heroism of like these guys are just heroes doing the right thing and the right, at the right time when like they needed to and they were capable of helping people I, to- I totally agree with that I-, I agree that that's in there but I also think I guess sort of my final point is that like I just think that that's that doesn't quite the the whole movie doesn't quite support that I think that's just being sort of undermined sure. at-, at certain points and again I sort of I-, I still I would say like the film overall um, I think it's sort of like literally, like I said, with earlier with like each act being a different movie. I also think with each act, it becomes like a better movie with the, and like and t- to the point where like mm-hmm. I do I do think that coda is sort of probably the best part. Like the train attack and the coda are sort of the best parts of the film, which like those were the parts that I found myself most engaged with. Um, that like that that I just found the film sort of clicking for me. Um, but yeah, Jake, what do you what, what do you yeah, think? The, the the coda doesn't work for me because they're you, well, I mean, you were tearing your hair out. You were waiting for the end. <laughs> I was, and I mean, you're you're talking about how this coda is like a final moving moment, but by by then it was too little, too late, and I think <laughs> insults added to injury because they're using the real footage of the guys getting their the French Medal of Honor, but then they're like intercutting with reaction shots of 
Judy Greer and Pam from The Office. And I'm like, no, get them out of here. We don't need this. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a classic case of um, us, uh, like, me liking it for exactly the reasons why you dislike it, which is fine. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah. obviously, that, you know? like, you're in the majority. <laughs> it is a, I mean, yeah, it is a, it is an, it is an oddity, I'll give you that. But I just, I, I think a lot of, a lot of the praise that um, you guys are giving it, uh, it just all seems really kind of accidental uh, on, on Eastwood's part. I don't think this was ever his intent because, you know, we Eastwood's a, a he's not a very meticulous filmmaker. He goes out, he shoots one or two takes, and I think he knew with these guys he would probably just have some sort of established camaraderie and he could just send them to Italy and roll a camera and, and put together this movie that we saw. But, yeah, yeah, see, yeah, I can't yeah. get behind that, Jake. I think that, I think that despite this film's failings, that there is a clear level of intent there. Um, I, I just don't see I, it then. Yeah, I, I'd go back to something that Eric actually wrote about how, about that gelato scene, you know. It, <laughs> it, it's a scene that, you know, you had to spend a great deal of time and effort to, to set up and block and, and, why second, the second <laughs> the second AD or whatever they're freaking called? Uh, sure, but but why? No, I'm just kidding. There, there's yeah. a reason. No, I agree. A reason it's in the film. Uh, I think that everything here has purpose. I I just not sure what it is at times. Why did they shoot it, the the woman? Why did like that's a there's dialogue with them because it's in the book. I don't know why. why? A, yeah, there, there's decisions in the third act that I think enrich the film greatly and make it the the interesting oddity that it is. I I don't find it to be a successful film, but uh, I'm not I'm not angry that I saw it. I think it's it's worth your time. Which is and it, which is uh, you thought you would be upset seeing it. Um, I know. I'm, I'm surprised Adam's being like almost kind to this film, which I did not expect. <laughs> I will say though, uh, one interesting thing that I've kind of thought about is that I will make a concession in a small way to people who like uh, a movie like Three Billboards. Um, <laughs> we'll talk much more about this in the next two episodes, I'm sure. But um, Go on. Uh, because <laughs> because. <laughs> um, because, like, there are things in Three Billboards that don't make sense at all, right? Like, there are textures in it that is just, like, I can't possibly imagine. Like, I want to sit down with people who like it and be like, at certain moments, okay, what about this? Like, the Lucas Hedges scene where he turns to his mom. Like, he's acting like I did when I was 12, I'm sure, in a film. Like, just, like, line readings or red herrings that don't go anywhere. That Like, that clearly are not there for subversion in my eyes but um but i can see like through 1570 to paris there are things i can't reconcile that i would never be like well that's what that's what this is here for or like i don't i can't make sense of a lot of stuff in that first act um or the balcony scene like i said like i i think i i have like some reasoning behind it but i'm still iffy on it um and i kind of like i said enjoy that uh like if it's a film that I buy that wins me over, I can kind of just be like, you know what? Like maybe I'll maybe when I see it down the road, like I'll be able to make sense of it. Maybe it still won't, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, so I will make a small concession to three billboards likers and other people 
or not other people, but and you know other movies that kind of have things that are like, well, why? Why does she say polo and polio? Why does she mix that up? Um, you know, like I can <laughs> see if a film wins you over, it wins you over, and I can respect that. Yeah, and that's uh, what this did to me. Yeah, I, I don't think this won me over. It just it, uh, billboards is on a whole different level because well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's trying to say something inappropriate yeah. and. And for for its faults, this movie is not. It's not sure. at all. And, exactly. That's uh, a good point. That's a good point. Just to, I, to divert the attention away from three billboards, I will. I will say that I think of the four of us here and our particular tastes. I'm probably the one person who should have loved this movie because I, I, I have a I have a predilection for seeing and enjoying things that have very little that happens and uh, are often generated by mood and atmosphere and uh, a film that I that I keep coming back to in my head after seeing this movie is uh, is Antonioni's Zabriskie Point where mm. it's a it's he takes these two actors or they're not really actors they have like little to no experience and just sort of uh, crafts this um, this 90 minute mood piece around them and they go to like the lowest point on American soil and have this weird orgy in the desert, and but like nothing of consequence really happens. So and he's writing in a language he doesn't know. So exactly. the acting in Zabriskie Point is like awful. I mean, and, like I can't speak to like what how the film like stacks up, but I remember being like, oh, this guy took like a Rosetta Stone home and wrote this script. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very it, it is very awful, and the performance that come off is just so is completely limited and wooden as the three guys and. 1517 to Paris, but uh, even at the end of the day, Zabriskie Point is just something that's so fascinating to me that I, I quite love it a great deal. And, and huh. I just, I, I, it just didn't click for me here. This is my Zabriskie Point, I guess. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that, that put me off on that end montage is is that choice of music. It was very reminiscent, as, as much of this film is, to Grant Torino to me that has that just dreadful <laughs> end song with him like warbling like Grant Torino and this <laughs> do you like Grant Torino I can never remember I I do like Grant Torino I uh, I think it's a very flawed film but it it captures something that I respect and relate to it, it it's a, it's a certain greatest generation character that that feels very authentic to me. Um, I, I'm not going to go to bat for it. I can understand why people would criticize it. Um, but it, it, it was more successful than this for me. But it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I'd say Eastwood at this point has earned the right to make what movie he wants to make. But I still, I don't know. It, I still find things that I have <laughs> issues with in this film. There's just, you you spend this entire runtime humanizing these three characters maybe demythologizing them turning them into mm-hmm. people rather than characters in a film and then you look at the terrorist who is yeah like, a shirtless like slavering <laughs> force of evil with with he, he does nothing he he's just yeah. a muslim who walks into a bathroom yeah. That, determined to shoot every white person he can see. That's that. That is another thing that I was just like. If I, I would like, I would have a, a bet, an even better movie. I think would have traced. You know, if we're talking about, you know, the roots of these guys' heroism, I would have liked to see the roots of his villainy. Like, I would have, I would have liked 
the movie to show as much understanding towards him as well. And that was another big criticism that I had towards American Sniper as well. It's just like, you know, as much as as much as nuanced and as morally ambiguous as Clint likes to get with most of the characters, he almost always needs a villain and a vi- and, and a villain that he simplifies to an almost absurd extent. And that that's where you get something in like the American Sniper that like rival um, F- that rival sniper that um, I can't remember if it was like Afghanistan or Iraq, but like. There was like this sort of other sniper who was literally, literally. It's all the same to you, isn't it, Eric? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But he's literally—he literally has no lines, and we see that he sort of has a family, but he just—he's just there to be like, sort of, the 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 bad guy reflection of of Chris Kyle, Bradley Cooper's character in American Sniper, and so that's 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 another sort of point of that, that, that I didn't mention in my review that I I had. A, a small issue with like I get that this guy was just a terrorist and we don't necessarily need to try to understand him but I sort of that would have that would have made the film much richer I think if, yeah but hmm. that's that's a fundamentally flawed thing no one is just a terrorist exactly it's, there's reasons for people's actions and to me that's a flaw in in your filmmaking if if you're making films that are reliant on villains then you need mm-hmm. to develop villains villains are interesting characters to write and to view as an audience and perfect and this guy might as well have just been a walking ak-47 exactly (laughs) i think i think if if clint were sorry eric i think if clint were to make a truly good film here he would have cast the actual terrorist who was on the train you know (laughs) you know i swear (laughs) to god i read this i swear to god i read this somewhere he tried to get him he tried to, but he was in prison, <laughs> and the French government wouldn't let him have him. Uh, well, okay, so, I mean, like, we belabor this, but I will say one thing that uh, may, maybe we'll end the discussion. There is no movie in February this year that we could have had as fruitful a conversation that oh, we yeah. had today. This uh, yeah, is very true. I'll give you that for going sure. Back, going back to the, the question Jake posed last week, would you rather watch 12 Strong 12 times or... 15, oh, 17. good question. I would I would watch 15, 17, 12 times before I'd watch. I would watch once. <laughs> I would watch fifteen, seventeen, seventeen times again before I watch twelve strong ones. Well, I watched I was, it once, so I don't need to watch the horse movie. Uh, you, you really okay, don't. I, you you looked at you you watched the better movie, Jake. Trust me. Oh yeah, <laughs> Myros hasn't seen the horse movie either. No, I, I will pass on that. I think that perhaps the film's real hero was, in fact, Steve Urkel, and he had uh, <laughs> he used the time machine that he invented in his Ste- basement to Stephane. travel back. Stefan. Stefan. <laughs> Stefan. He used that time machine in his basement to travel back and set these heroes on their path, and uh, we have him to thank for stopping the disaster in in Paris. Um, that is all. Let's wrap up this discussion, guys. Uh, yeah. We are going to move on to putovers. Uh, Jake, what are you putting over? Um, I uh, I mentioned Zabriskie Point earlier. I recommend that movie if you haven't seen it, <laughs> or if you've if you've seen this movie and you like it, maybe you, you'll enjoy it. But um, as uh, as my official putover, um, gosh, I haven't I haven't really seen anything 
uh, of note lately, so uh, I'm going to put over, uh, just in case you haven't listened to it or watched it yet, I'm going to put over the audio commentary track on Shadowrun's <laughs> 15th anniversary Blu-ray. Get a copy of that on Amazon. It's about $10. And uh, enjoy. So not only is the uh, 911 report our new segment, uh, this is our other new <laughs> weekly segment where Jake puts over the Showgirls commentary track. That's right. Uh, uh, Eric, what are you putting over? Um, I've also been kind of bad. I've been busy. I haven't watched or listened to a whole lot of new stuff. But um, the one thing that I did see the past week, um, everybody else saw, so I'm going to be lame and put over Black Panther because that's the only thing like of note that I've seen. Um, but I, I also wanted to mention earlier, it's like we were talking about villains and Jake mentioned, like, Jake, Jake or Adam mentioned how like good villains are like fun to write and if you flesh them out it makes your movie richer and I, Black Panther has that like it has a villain who's like very complex and interesting and has motives that you can totally understand and um like and and like I, there's there's certain points where like you're on his side almost um so yeah Black Panther obviously everybody's heard of it if you're one of the like eight people who hasn't seen it yet go see it did the they, villain um, also has a they, very. Uh, I'm sorry. The villain also has a very complex and nuanced and interesting name. Killmonger. <laughs> uh, D- does it turn out that he's a, actually a good guy underneath? No, N- no but <laughs> Sean, his name is Killmonger. He is. He's not <laughs> he's, a good guy. He is definitively yeah, he the kids. bad guy, but um, he's. Well, you'd, you'd think that about some villains in some movies that there's no way they could be seen as good guys, but you know then. Luminaries change our minds. Yes. Uh, Sean, what are you putting over? <laughs> um, I'll put over I, Daniel Blake. Um, I've been watching a lot of Oscar catch-up stuff, so I haven't seen it in a few weeks, but it's really stuck with me. <clears throat> um, uh, Ken Loach movie from, I guess, late 2016, but didn't really make its way here until uh, last year. Uh, but it's... Uh, this like socialist drama uh, about this man who uh, is trying to navigate uh, uh, getting welfare checks and but not and not being able to work and because of his doctor mandate and it's just like kind of a lot of him waiting in line and and it's it's basically like this experiential film about a guy just coming face to face with how awfully like circuitous a lot of these social systems are set up to not like really give you any relief um and that sounds really uh upsetting and uh, and it is but it still has heart uh which is really nice to see after some of the movies i've been watching recently um that it 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 is able to not dwell on the negativity of this stuff but obviously that is foregrounded, but it's still able to like round out these people and show this community of people that sort of help each other survive in this, this, this society. Uh, and it's, it's a brisk viewing. So I, I highly recommend it. It's out on Criterion. All right. That, that sounds, uh, interesting. I've heard good things. Uh, we are highlighting a bizarre and flawed, an ultimately worthwhile film uh, this evening, and I'm I'm going to put over one that I similarly reacted to. Uh, that I've been I've been doing my Oscar catch up for the uh, big pod coming up, and 
Uh, On Body and Soul is uh, in a similar vein to me of a, of a film that I had a real difficult time parsing, but it, it is beautifully shot. Uh, something you could not say for fifteen seventeen, but it it is <laughs> it is not a perfect film. It is a, a sort of magical realism romance. Uh, if it were an American film, I think it would be among the more insufferable productions you'd ever see. But it is definitely not. It has a very European sensibility. It's a it's a very still film, and uh, it kept me engaged throughout. And despite its flaws, I think it is worth seeing and would recommend that you do so. It is available on Netflix now. Uh, so moving on from that, let's go ahead and tell the good people where they can find you, gentlemen. Uh, Jake, where can they get a hold of you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, or most things actually, at Jake Tropila, T-R-O-P-I-L-A. Hit me up there. All right. How about you, Sean? At Mr. Glennis. That's M-R-G-L-I-N-I-S. Uh, Eric, where are they going to find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Eric Bailey, E-R-I-C-B-A-Y-L-E-Y. Uh, I don't tweet. That That's for suckers. Um, Clint Eastwood would not approve of Twitter. <laughs> so I try to live by his code. And, uh, you know, if you guys were to go to the iTunes store and rate... Uh, cast five stars we sure would appreciate it you know that uh, gets our visibility up and thereby we can continue to make more quality content for you guys uh beyond that you can always email us with any questions comments ideas at uh, optimism vaccine at gmail.com uh thanks for listening this evening this has been a fun one have a good night mm-hmm.